Well, praise the Lord. It's so good to gather together, and it's so good, again, to uh, preach through the book of Acts. I've never tried to, to preach through the book of Acts. This is my first time going through it, and I must say it's been a rather uh, delight uh, to really see, again, all these uh, first things. And one, and one of the things that we looked at last time is we looked at verses 27 and 28. And this comes from a prayer that was offered up by the apostles to God in light that uh, the first persecution has just begun. They've uh, just been threatened not to preach in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what they try to do is they try to understand their problems as they're praying to God through the scriptures. In other words, they praise the scriptures, in particular Psalm chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage? Why, why do they imagine a vain thing? In other words, it will not come to pass. You know, and you look at all the events that have happened to transpire, even that the, the events that the apostles are going through, but also around the cross. And you have to ask the question, who's in control? You know, who is ultimately in charge of all of these events? Because you realize, after the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus, everyone thought that evil had triumphed. All the followers of Jesus thought evil, beyond a shadow of a doubt, has, had had their day. I mean, look, look at Jesus, the most innocent man who had ever lived. The man who went everywhere doing good, healing all these various different maladies, helping people, preaching the kingdom of God, calling people to come back to God. There was no one more holy, no one more glorious than the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see that he's taken, he's butchered. You know, he's, he's mocked, he's scorned, and he's ultimately killed upon that cruel cross of Calvary. And here's the whole point. It looks like beyond a shadow of a doubt that evil had triumphed. Evil and wicked men had had their day. But then we read in verse number 28, it says, To do whatever your hand, speaking of God, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And let me just say this, I cannot overemphasize the importance of verses 27 and 28. You know, it's important, again, beyond a shadow of a doubt, because there's so many various different interpretations that happen to be, again, about the cross today. What's the meaning of the cross? What is the message of the cross? And what we have here, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is what the apostles, what the first church believed about the gospel, believed about all of these events that transpired around the gospel. And what they believe, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this was God's doing. You know, this was God's hand. In other words, the gospel is God's gospel. Let me say that again, because we really need to get it. The gospel's whose? It's God's gospel, right? right? It's not man. It's not just dumb fortune that put him on the cross. It's not that Jesus is just giving us an example. You know, sometimes we have to die for a noble cause. We realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, what comes to pass is exactly what God wants to come to pass. You know, and it's, and it's absolutely important because in this text of Scripture, we get an understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what the early church believed about the gospel. But it's also important for a second reason. And that is we realize that this is not just history, but this is divine history, isn't it? In other words, it's inspired, it's God-breathed. We realize that Luke is writing it, but he's writing it being superintended by the Holy Spirit of God, so much so that every word, every iota that's written happens to be from God. So the reason why I say that, to reject what is being prayed right here as far as the truth is to reject God. What God has said about himself, what God has said about the cross that happens to be again right there. And you see beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was preordained. This was predestined, right? Predestined. We realize destination, right? 
predestined to take place, right? It is your uh, plan. And then he says this, by your hand. Other words, it was by the hand. We do things with our hand. So everything that you see around the cross comes to pass because God wants it to come to pass. And I, and I find this absolutely extraordinary. You know, I think Richard tried to, tried to do his best job this morning to get us to worship our great God. You know, we come in this morning, and the, and the one place that we should look forward to, the one time that we should look forward to in the week is coming together to worship this great God for what he has done. We should be amazed that God has called us together to worship him. And let me say, say what happens to be again talked about in these couple of verses. I think is greater than a thousand miracles if a thousand miracles were all of a sudden accomplished. And the reason why is because it's talking about God ordaining, God using. Here it is. The free decisions of man, the free actions of man, the free thoughts of man, the free intentions of man all around the cross. You know, and even leading up to the cross, so much so that there's millions and millions and millions of decisions that have to be made to put Jesus on that cross on a particular day, at a particular time, that he could be, again, the perfect offering again for our sins. And I find that absolutely amazing because if you change one little event, if you change one little decision, you, you know, it, it, it never comes to fruition. You know, the agony, again, of Jesus in the garden is too much. It's just a little more that happens to be upon him. Remember, he's, he's sweating sweat drops of blood. He's in great, deep anguish. If it happens to be, again, a little more, he expires in the garden. And there's no offering for sin. You know, if all of a sudden Jesus says to the disciples, this, this night you are going to betray me, and all of a sudden they muster up the courage to all of a sudden protect Jesus when the soldiers come, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, you don't have the cross. You don't have Jesus dying again during that time. You know, if all of a sudden here are the religious leaders and they realize beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, that this is a dangerous time, this is a time where all of a sudden rebellion could happen and therefore we are not going to arrest Jesus Christ on Passover, then he can't die on Passover. You know, he can't die at that particular time when the sacrificial uh, lambs are being slaughtered at, at the temple. You know, if all of a sudden the crowds look at the pathetic uh, sight of Jesus being be who was beaten by the soldiers, and they, did, they decide not to choose Barabbas, but to choose Jesus, nothing happens. There is no salvation. Think of it, their hearts. All those individuals that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, and meant it from the depths of their heart. You know, give us Barabbas. You know, his blood be on upon our hands. You know, think of Pilate would have just mustered up just a little moral fiber. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt this man, Jesus, had done nothing worthy of death and said, no, 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 I'm not going to be part of this. All of a sudden, Jesus is not offered up. Just think of the soldiers. These were hardened men. Think if they beat on Jesus just a little more. Then he expires right there. One more lash upon his back, and he expires right there. And we are men most miserable. We are people most miserable because all of a sudden... There is no salvation. Jesus does not die at a particular time, at a particular occasion, at that particular hour. And you think of the millions and billions and millions and millions of decisions, free decisions that are all orchestrated by God to come to pass to have his will done. And, and here's why it's so important, because it not only becomes a template to understanding the gospel, because I think, again, as you understand the gospel, you begin to understand your life. 
you, you begin to understand the outworking of all of the events of life, and you begin to trust in this God, even when it looks like evil is triumphing all around you. We realize that God can use the evil and has ordained to use the evil. At the same time, he's never indicted against that evil. Now, that's a great mystery, but we hold those truths in tension. You know, and I really want us to look at this, and I want us to look again at two views that haven't begun popular among uh, the message, the meaning of the cross. And I, and I, and I want to see how these two verses really refute those, those, uh, the, the, those definitions, those interpretations, again, of the cross, because I think a lot of times we look at this and we can say good people can differ on this. But when you realize what is at stake, what is at stake is none other than the gospel. This is God's gospel. This is God's plan for our redemption. And it becomes so vital and so important. And one of the major views that happen to begin out there that's taught again so often is that the events that happen to begin around the cross are just a mistake. You know, they just happen. You know, it happened to be, again, just bad luck, Jesus being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But let's just meditate, and I want you to think about these words that happen to begin written in verses 27 and 28. Listen to what they say again. It says, for truly, in this city, there were gathered against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And that word anointed is used by, on, on purpose. Because when we read Psalm chapter 2, they are gathered against the Lord's, what? Anointed, Right? And here is Jesus, the one whom you anointed, you have chosen as the great Messiah that happens to be here. And who is gathered against him, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. In other words, you know, you have emblematic, uh, in one way or another, everyone that happens to be in the world. You know, and you look at all the evil, and then we have this incredible uh, interpretation of all this, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And it is amazing to look at it, all the mocking and ridiculing, all of the scorning, all of the rebuke that's been played uh, even back then against those who happen to be believers in the Lord Jesus. They just could not, again, accept the gospel of the Lord Jesus. When you look at the Jews, the Jews thought it was offensive to think that this great one, this, the Lord's anointed, the one who was chosen in the Old Testament, the one who was going to come in power and might and reign and rule, could ever die on a cursed tree. And it was offensive. It was repulsive. You know, that happened to be. And it was like taking bad fruit into your mouth. You know, they just, oh, were so turned off about it. And when you look at, look at the Romans and the, Gentile, and the Gentiles, in other words, the non-Jewish people that haven't begun out there, they, they, they ridiculed it. You know, look at how weak your God is. Look at how weak your Lord is. You know, there's nothing more weak, there is nothing more silly than God dying on a cross. Than a great Lord, the creator again of all the universes, universe giving his life. And they mocked and scorned it. And I think, again, much of the mocking and scorning, in fact, I know much of the mocking and scorning goes on today. But the question is, again, why is there mocking and scorning? I think there's a lot of mocking and scorning. Some of it just happens to be, again, out there. Some do not want to understand. But I think a lot of people really misunderstand the gospel. You know, just like they misunderstood it in the ancient world. And it's amazing to look at this because... Uh, I think even in the church, people misunderstand the gospel, misunderstand 
what God again had done on the cross. You know, and in a professing church, and let me just put this in quotation marks, the professing church, because it does not mean it is the true church, but what this is, is the professing church. And when you look at that, the view that happens to be again in the, much of the professing church is that this was just a mistake. This was just evil gone, gone uh, wild. Jesus, again, was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the reason why they say that is somehow to protect God. And the reason why they say that is because there's so much evil, there's so much wickedness that happens to be around the cross, and here it is, and even in our own lives, even in our own society that happens to be again around us. So how do I understand all of this evil? And here's how. God wasn't in it. You know, God didn't ordain it. You know, it just happened. Don't say, my God did that. I can remember talking to a gentleman one time, and he says, my God's not like that. And I said, you better look at the gospel, my friend. You better look at the gospel, my friend. Because it's amazing, even when Jesus is going to Jerusalem, he realizes beyond a shadow of a doubt, you think of it, nobody knew the Old Testament better than Jesus. And he realizes when he's going up to Jerusalem, what is going to happen, what God had preordained. And you find that in uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is a famous um, uh, chapter because Jesus asked a question to his disciples. Who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? And remember to Peter, he says, you are the Christ. In other words, the anointed one. You are the anointed one, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my father who is in heaven. And from that time on, he began to teach them about that he must suffer when he gets to Jerusalem. In fact, it happens to be in verse number 21 of that chapter. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he, and look at the word must, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on on the third day be raised. And that must there, you have to understand what it is. That must is, here it is, is a divine imperative. In other words, what we mean by divine imperative, this has to take place. This is in God's plan. And it takes in not only Jesus going to Jerusalem, but it takes in that he will be killed when he he gets there by the religious leaders. And on a third day, he will rise again. Right? This must take place. Now, think about it, because right after that, what happens? You know, Peter protests. This is not the way you build a kingdom. This is not the way you build a movement. This is not the way that you get people to follow you. This will not come to pass. And what does Jesus say to him? In verse number 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now think about it. Get behind me, Satan. That is a strong statement. And then he says, you're a hindrance to me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? God has spoken. Right? God has spoken. God has ordained these things. And whether we can explain it in the big thing or not, uh, we realize that this is what the Word of God says. So to stand against what the Word of God says, to stand against even what Jesus says, is to be opposed to the great God that happens to be above. And let me just say this again. This is what the early church believed, right? I'm not... I'm not somehow taking a verse over here and a verse over here and bringing them together. This is what the early church believed. And I realize it's tough for us many times because we love neat and tidy uh, 
categories. We like to say God's in this, but God's not in this event that happens to be again over here. We love neat and tidy categories. But I think, again, a lot of times we just do not think through what the word of God says. You know, and God has ordained these things. John Piper wrote a really excellent book a number of years ago. It's only a small book, but it's called Spectacular Sins. And he writes in that book, he says, from all these prophecies, speaking again of all these prophecies fulfilled at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, we know that God foresaw and did not prevent and therefore included in his plan that his son would be what? Rejected, hated, abandoned, betrayed, denied, condemned, spit upon, flogged, mocked, pierced, and killed. All these were explicitly in God's mind before they actually happened as things that he planned would happen to Jesus. These things did not just happen. They were foretold in God's word. God knew they would happen and could have, and could have planned to stop them, but he didn't. So they happened according to a sovereign will, his plan. And all of them were evil. They were sin. It is surprisingly sinful to reject, hate, Abandon, betray, deny, condemn, spit upon, flog, mock, pierce, and kill the morally perfect, infinitely worthy, divine Son of God. And yet the Bible explicitly and and clear that God himself planned these things. This is the explicit, not only in all the prophetic tests that we have, have seen, but also in the passages that say even more plainly that God ordained that these things come to pass, such as the text that we're looking at this morning. You know, Piper's amazing in that book because he says, what's the big deal? You know, because a lot of people will look at that. You know, there's such a flimsy uh, uh, orientation towards the Word of God and towards inspiration. You know, that these are the various words of God. It's, oh, you're free to believe this, you're free to believe this, you're free to believe this, you're free to believe this. And there's such a flimsiness that happens to be again about that. But the question we have to ask ourselves, why is this so important? Why is it so important that we say God is sovereign over all of the events of the crucifixion? And Piper goes on and he answers that question. He says, why should this matter to you? And then he answers it. It should matter because if God were not the main actor in the death of Christ, then the death of Christ, listen to what he says, could not save us from our sins, and we would perish in hell forever. The reason the death of Christ is at the heart of the gospel, the heart of the good news, is that God was doing it. And then he quotes Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, think about it, how did God show his love for us? Us. And it doesn't say because a whole bunch of men made these decisions. But it says this, Christ died for us. If you separate God's activity from the death of Jesus, this is what you lose. You lose the gospel. This was God's doing. It's the highest and deepest point of his love for sinners. His love for you. I mean, it is amazing. I, I try to wrap my head. I try to understand it many times, and, I, and I'm not that bright, I guess. But I just can't understand it, how God can use sin to ultimately conquer sin. And at the same time, never be indicted for it. 
And why? Because people are freely choosing to do what they want to do. But what comes to pass is the absolute sovereign plan of God. And so when I look at the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a mistake. It's not just bad luck. It's not evil triumphing the day and now God's put in a position where he has to make some sort of good come out of that. In other words, he's reacting to all these events that haven't again transpired. This is God's plan. This is God's gospel. This is his good news. That's why he is praised and honored. Now, that's one view that happened to begin out there. One, one view, when you look at the cross again of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you look again at all the events that happened to take place, it was, it, it was just a mistake. It was just dumb luck. It was just evil triumphing during that day. But there is another one. And that is, again, the main message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the moral example of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard that. But let me tell you, it's gained in popularity. And the reason why it's gained in popularity is because there's some truth behind it. You know, because who's the greatest example of living by faith in God? And it is, begins with a J. Anyone know? Okay, no, it wasn't Judas, that's for sure, okay? Okay, it wasn't Joshua in the Old Testament, praise God for his witness. It wasn't Joseph, although he was stellar. But it was Jesus Christ, wasn't it? He, he's the greatest example. You know, and I'm just amazed the more I look at his humanity, Because when you look at him, he came again to live that human life as human, not as God, but as human. And he lived that perfectly in a trust in his father, in a trust in his father, in a trust in his father, through all the circumstances, through all the trials, through all the temptations. We realize the three temptations that happened to begin Jesus in the wilderness, but let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, all through his ministry, he was tempted. You know, it's amazing to see he went through all of this and he came through without sin. Something that could be said of him and something that cannot be said of us, but he becomes our great example. How to live by faith in the Father, how to trust in him, no matter what comes in our life, no matter what circumstances we go through. But let me just say that that is a far cry from saying that the main message of the gospel is the moral example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I was to ask you to put up your hands, and I'm not going to ask you to do that, how many of you came from either an Amish or a Mennonite background? I think there's quite a few of you that have come from a Mennonite background. And one of the cardinal teachings, again, of the Mennonite background, as far as how you obtain salvation, is that you have to follow the example of Jesus Christ. You have to follow his immoral example. You have to live up to a certain standard, up to a certain pattern, in order, again, to be welcomed into his kingdom. And that pattern, that standard, is actually the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through, um, uh, through chapters number 7. And if you can take that as a template, again, of your life, how to live, how to function, let me tell you, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will get to heaven. The only problem with the Sermon on the Mount, the reason why Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, is not a template in how to get to heaven. If I just, you know, if never angry at the ha- in my heart, if I just never lust after someone who's not my wife, if I just love even my enemies, I will be found in God's kingdom. It's not that. You know, but it's a template to show us our absolute sinlessness, right? If your righteousness far exceeds the righteousness, and think how righteous the scribes and Pharisees were, And he says, if your righteousness would have to far exceed them, none of us could live that. In fact, there's only one person who has ever lived out the Sermon on the Mount. 
And it happens to be Jesus. None of us can live it out. But it's amazing because we love to pick and choose various different parts of Scripture, and we choose that part, and if I just live by that, you know, God's going to be my God, God's going to be proud of me, God's going to accept me. And one of the biggest things in Mennonite theology and uh, even the Amish theology happens to be pacifism. And pacifism, basically this, is don't protect yourself. You know, don't protect your neighbor. Don't protect this individual if they happen to, again, uh, have opposition, right? Right, you can see that many times. If somebody comes and slugs your neighbor, let them be slugged. If somebody comes and slugs you or slaps you across the face, take the offense. You know, and it's amazing to look at it, and we realize where it comes from. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. But here's the amazing thing to think about. When you look at the Old Testament scriptures, in fact, when you even look at the book of James that we read this morning, God is the God of the underprivileged. God is the God who comes to the protection of those who are victimized many times, those who are oppressed. He comes. He is their God. He is there to protect them. In fact, the human institution of government, even though it's imperfect, is there to protect the oppressed. It's there for them. You know, and it's amazing because you have to follow the example of Jesus. You have to follow the example of Jesus. Jesus is morally pure. Jesus is morally pure. And I agree with that. But how in Jesus and all of his moral purity, how does he come back? Does he come back turning the other cheek? And the answer is what? No. He comes back as a great warrior to defend the honor of God, to defend the honor even of those who happen to be in him. And you have that in Revelation chapter 19. This is a picture of Jesus that many times is not preached or taught. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called who? Faithful and true. And in righteousness, that's how he comes. That's how we are to live. In righteousness, he judges and does what? And makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire in his head, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called. Think of what John calls him in the beginning of his gospel. He is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, We're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robes and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. This is Jesus. Right, And it's easy to say, I have to earn, I have to merit myself away into heaven. Jesus is my moral example, and pick and choose, right? Oh, I'm going to go this passive and be really proud that I took that knock in the face, or I let my buddy take a knock in the face. Let me say beyond a shadow, many times we have to take personal offenses, but we are also supposed to stand up for those who are victimized, those who are oppressed, those, again, who are held down. You know, and we look at the Mennonite, we look at the Amish tradition, and the Amish, again, Christianity, if we can put it in quotes again. But let me just say that it's found a lot of times in the wider sphere of what we would call Christianity. You know, Jesus is our great example. 
Jesus stood up again for those who could not stand up for themselves. Jesus was willing to die because he realized a noble cause. And when we realize a noble cause, when we realize that something's wrong in our society, we have to be willing to stand up even if it costs our lives. And so when you take the gospel, here's the message of the gospel. Jesus is that example. Jesus is morally pure. Jesus is the one who sticks up for us. And we have to follow Jesus' pattern. So anything that happened to be out there, any, again, cause that we feel strongly about, we take and we insert the gospel. You know, whether it happens to be protecting, you know, the environment or whatever it happened to be. Well, Jesus protected others. We're protecting others by fighting for this right that happens to be again right there. You know, and it's amazing, again, even as you look at this, because these are cleverly devised arguments to pick and choose what elements of the historical narrative that they should believe. But here's the question you have to ask yourself. In the moral example of Jesus, if Jesus is just our moral example, who is God, Right? Is he the all-powerful, all-majestic, all-sovereign God? And the answer is what? No. But when you look at the events of the cross, the cross are man's actions. They are man's doing. They are not God. God only responds. You know, he resurrects Jesus to show that he's for noble causes. You know, so I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt when I am fighting for this noble cause, even, even though I'm not trusting in God, even though I'm not thinking of a God, you know, I can know beyond a shadow of a doubt God's on my side, he's on my, my corner, because look, he resurrected Jesus Christ. You know, and God is just responding, right? He resurrected him, he responded to him. Because if God, think about it, if God is only reacting to the heinous events that went on at the cross, and he's not responsible for those things that took place on the cross. But here, here, he, he, here are evil men, and they are responsible. God's not responsible. God let that take place. And we have to ask the question, where was God in all of that? If God is righteous, if God is just, if God is all good, and he is not over the events of the cross... We have to ask ourselves, where was he? I mean, he saw it taking place, right? He saw, again, Judas with the armed soldiers leading and again coming through the night, coming to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. He saw, he saw the mock trial and what they wanted to do with uh, Jesus and how the religious leaders afterwards wanted to punch and kick and pluck out his beard. They realized that beyond the shadow of that. They knew, again, when he was delivered over to the soldiers that they would make sport of him. And he knew beyond a shadow of doubt the spikes were in the hands of the soldiers to nail Jesus and thrust that cross upwards. And here's the question. Where was God? Right? If he is only responding to what took place, where was he? Because I think a lot of times we're trying to get God off the hook. And let me just say, say, no, he wasn't in that. No, no, no. He did good afterwards, but he wasn't in that does not get God off the hook. And let me say again, it ignores the word of God. And if you have a high view of the word of God being the word of God, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, you have to hold that all of these acts, even though we can't understand how he's not indicted again for all of these, all of these acts, God ordained to take place. 
And he can hear it all the way through the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus quotes many of these Old Testament passages. In fact, he quotes Psalm 118, verse number 22. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 43, it says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? In other words, the stone that the builders, the builders are the religious leaders, and they rejected Jesus Christ. But look at what he says right after this. Look at what he says. This was the Lord's doing. Here are these free actions. They reject Jesus. But who, what is coming to pass? What is coming to pass? Is this what the Lord's doing? And this is what the Lord's doing for our salvation. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You see that? That's why he's praised. That's why he's honored. Uh, Jesus quotes Psalm 35, verse number 19, in John 15, 25. He says, but the word of the Lord, but the word that is written in their law, and here's this word must again, must be fulfilled, right? It's an divine imperative. This has to come to pass. They hated me without cause. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did they hate Jesus? And the answer is, there was no cause. Right? Even, in, even, in, even during his trial, they couldn't think of an accusation to bring up against him. Right? They hated him without cause. But this must be fulfilled. Jesus quotes Zechariah chapter 13, verse number 7, and Matthew chapter 26, and verse number 31. He says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. In other words, volitionally fall away. Because of me this night, right? I will be arrested and you'll be fearful of your life and you will volitionally, you will freely fall away. Now, why ultimately will that take place? For it is written, I will strike the shepherd. Now, let me just stop right there. Who is striking the shepherd? The shepherd's Jesus. And who's striking the shepherd? And the answer's not hard, is it? The one who is striking the shepherd is God the Father. Right? It's not the religious leaders. It's not the Roman soldiers. It's God the Father. I will strike the shepherd. And this is what will happen. And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. In other words, you'll desert me. This is the will of God. Let me just give one other passage by way of illustration. And you can see this again a thousand times. There's a plethora of Old Testament um, uh, um, prophecies that, that are filled in the New Testament. And it says in John chapter 19, beginning of verse number 34, it says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness, this is John, his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. And then he says this, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. And here's the scripture. Not one of my bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now think about it. Think about one. Think about what is gained in the scripture if all of a sudden in the Old Testament, this passage, when not one of my bones is broken, is taken out, and all of a sudden we have nothing in the gospel about any of his bones being broken. What is added or deleted from the gospel? You know, how does it change our faith? And here's the the answer. It doesn't. So why do we have that? We have that for this reason. Every single 
thing that happens around the cross and in the cross, every single detail, every single uh, of the millennia of decisions that were made freely by man and came to pass was by the ordained will of God. His will came to pass. His will and his will alone. And it's amazing because when you realize this, you realize that there's no accident. You realize that the main message is not that I need to follow Jesus in order to get to heaven, but he is the great redeemer. And this is God's gospel. This is his doing. This is his salvation that he offers to sinners like us. It is his plan. And the other thing that it convinces us as we live in this world, because we live in this world where there's murder, where there's rapes, where there's embezzlement, where people, again, are many times victimized, where we struggle with sin uh, uh, in our own lives, where other people sin against us and do evil that happens against us. And it convinces us beyond a shadow of a doubt that when we look at the chaos that happens to be again around us, that is this, that is this, that is this, that there is a plan of God. And he can be trusted. Right? Do you believe that? Do you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt the scripture? And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I often ask this question, but I'll ask it again. What do all things entail? All things mean what? Well, well, you don't understand what happened here. You don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand what she said to me. What does all things mean? All things means all things. And how do I know that beyond a shadow of doubt? I look at the cross. And if all things are working for my ultimate good, let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I can have absolute security in Jesus Christ because the scripture goes on. It says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come. Right? God is more powerful. He's more sovereign. His plan will come to pass. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't it true? And why? Because we have a sovereign God. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? Who's in control? He's in control. And I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, we think this is such a minor point, but I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the dividing line between life and death. This is what the early church believed about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just give the last word to John Piper, <laughs> which he could say a lot more eloquently than I could ever say. But this is what he writes. He says, the reason why this book matters is this. If you embrace the biblical truth, and I pray you will, that God ordained spectacular sins for the global glory of his Son, without God in any way becoming unholy or unrighteous or sinful in that act, then you will not shrink back from the cross of Christ as a work of God. 
you will not be among the number of those who call the world's most loving act, listen to what people call it today, and they call themselves Christian, divine child abuse. You will come to the cross and fall on your face. And you will say, this is no mere human conspiracy. This is the work of God and the love of God. And you will receive at his highest gift, and you will be saved. And what's the outcome of that? And Christ will be glorified. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing text. What a convicting text. God, so often we complain about the trials, about the adversity. Lord, even the impossibility of living godly lives. Lord, we look at ourselves many times as victims. We look at ourselves many times, Lord, as people who are not culpable, are not held responsible for the decisions that we make. But we realize, Lord, that any decision that we make in this life, any sin that we choose above you, Lord, that we're absolutely responsible. We cannot blame you. We cannot say that you ordained it, Lord, in that sense. But we freely chose to do what we do. But at the same time, Lord, the glory of the cross, the glory even of looking at redemptive human history, is to recognize, Lord, whatever comes to pass is ultimately your will. And Lord, as we look at that, all we can do is trust you. Lord, with all of the things going on in our life, Lord, with all even the, the wicked people that might be in our life, Lord, or the situations, the trials that we're going through, Lord, where we think beyond a shadow of doubt things are out of control, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt they're in control because if you control the wickedness and the evilness around the cross Lord how can you not control everything around our lives just be with us help us to have a confidence that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose and we will glory in your name we thank you in Christ's name amen brother